Back in the 1930s, you know, think about the 1930s, way back when, bridge building was one of the most dangerous occupations in our nation. So much so that for every million dollar you spent on a project building a bridge, you would expect at least one person to die. And what was crazy was this was acceptable. Until this man, Joseph Strauss, came into the picture. He was the chief engineer for the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. All the beautiful pictures that you've seen, maybe you've driven across it and you visit San Francisco, you've seen the beauty of that bridge. Well, Joseph Strauss decided that he was going to change course with different and new safety enhancements and measures. Things like a hard hat. Right? Can you imagine a hard hat for the first time being innovative? A safety harness that they would have to always wear. He even created this special uh, goggles for your eyes so that you might prevent snow blindness, which was when the sun would come down and reflect off of the water and blind you in the eyes. And what he said was that if anyone refused to do so, he would fire them on the spot. And surprisingly, people refused to do so. They refused to do so, and Joseph Strauss fired them on the spot. In, a, in an interview in 1937 in the Saturday Evening Post, this is what he said. On the Golden Gate Bridge, we had the idea that we could cheat death by providing every known safety device for the workers. To the annoyance of the daredevils who love to stunt at the end of cables far out in space, we fired any man who we caught stunting on the job. What caught my attention with that interview was that Joseph Strauss made it his mission to cheat death by all measures. Don't we all do that? In our lives where death is the last enemy, we all try to cheat and evade death. Just this week, I was in the bathroom washing up and my daughter was there and she looked at me and looked up at me and just noticed all the gray hairs and said, Daddy, you have so many gray hairs. And I looked at her and said, I know, I'm getting old and one day I'm going to die. <laughs> and Nora, one day you're going to get old and you're going to die. <laughs> that was my parenting advice for my daughter. But you know what she said to me? She said, Daddy, I am not going to die. You know why? Because I'm going to dye my hair and I can get plastic surgery. <laughs> whether it's hair dye, whether it's plastic surgery, Lord, I pray she doesn't get plastic surgery. You know, it's a lot of different things. It's vitamins. It's working out. It's cosmetic enhancements. It's all these different things that we could talk about, hormone therapy. We do whatever we can, like Joseph Strauss, to cheat death. We do it to evade death. Death is the last enemy. And we do everything not only to evade it, but to distract ourselves from the reality of what is true. We all die. Here this morning, the good news of why we have gathered and why Easter is so important to Christians all over the world as we celebrate this morning is because no matter what you think of death, 
from all the anxieties and fears, this morning, we do not have to fear. We can have hope because Jesus actually rose from the grave. That, em- that tomb is empty. His heart beat that morning. His blood began to flow, and he walked out of that tomb. And what I want us to do this morning is to look at the importance of this resurrection. The importance of it, and then secondly, the implications of this resurrection. Because, like I said, it's something we definitely celebrate. We are happy but something that must be lived out as followers of Jesus. First, the importance of the resurrection. What was read for us in this morning from Michaela in this passage is this beautiful treatise on the resurrection. Now, the reason Paul gives this treatise in chapter 15 is because there are actually Christians in the church at Corinth that do not believe the resurrection happened. Did you hear me? We live in a society where we think we have science, we're modern, we're smarter, we have more access to information that lets us realize that the resurrection maybe, not, maybe did not happen. We're smarter than the people way back then that believed that Jesus actually rose from the grave. But Paul's writing to a church 2,000 years ago that also did not believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead. And so what Paul does is he gives this treatise and he does this very unsettling and unexpected thought experiment. And this is how it went in what we read. I'll give my own version of it. If people stay dead, then Jesus is still dead. And if Jesus is still dead, then Jesus is a hoax. And if Jesus is a hoax, and we have trusted in him in this life, then guess what? We are the most pathetic people in the world. We are the most pitied. We are the most unhappy. And what Paul does here is he's basically laying his cards out. And he's asking the question we have all asked ourselves, including me. Driving down the street randomly, or if I go through some struggles in life and challenges, I think, and I ask myself, is this whole Christianity thing real? Did Jesus actually die? And Paul goes there for us. There's nothing new under the sun. And he gives reasons for why we are the most pitied people and most pathetic if Jesus did not raise from the dead. And the first reason he says is, my preaching and my planting churches all over Asia and Asia Minor is actually all for naught. It's just an elegant, elaborate lie. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we are pitied because we would still be in our sin. Because the Father has not accepted the perfect sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. And so we must still be responsible for our sin and the ways we treat each other, the ways we hate on one another and our enemies, the way we treat our friends, and especially in the ways we have rebelled against God. We are still accountable for our sin and we are pitied. We are pathetic. But then he also also says if we are the most pitied, it's because ultimately we are without hope if Christ has not been raised because we have put our hope in thin air. 
thin air. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we are the most pathetic people in the world, and he's willing to go there, but that's where the thought experiment ends, and the gospel begins. The resurrection is everything for Paul. And what does he say? He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. What Paul is doing with this thought experiment is he's saying everything depends on whether Jesus rose from the grave or not. Christianity and the resurrection is not just one subset of our faith. It can't just be little, this little thing that we put to the side and we say, well, Jesus either rose from the dead or didn't, and it doesn't really matter. I'm a follower of Jesus. No, he's saying it must be everything. Everything rides on the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why he does this thought experiment, to show us you're either the most hopeful people and the confident people, or you are the most pitied and pathetic. Christopher Hitchens a famous atheist. Many of us have, are familiar with him and some of his books. Back in the early 2000s or late 2000s, he wrote a book called God is Not Great. And in, a, in, a, in an interview with Sewell, a Unitarian minister, she interviews him. And I wanted to just read an excerpt of her interview with Christopher Hitchens. She starts out by saying this, The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scriptures literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Here, Hitchens' response. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. I would classify that under the heading of statements that have no meaning at all. Paul says very clearly that if it is not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we, are the, we the Christians, are of all people the most unhappy. If none of that's true, and you seem to say it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. If all Christians were like you, I wouldn't have to write this book. Isn't that fascinating? Well, she goes on to ask him, well, probably not because I agree with almost everything that you say. But I still consider myself a Christian and a person of faith. And Hitchens flips it and says, do you mind if I ask you a question? Faith in what? Faith in the resurrection? And she responds, the way I believe in the resurrection is I believe that one can go from a death in this life in the sense of being dead to the world and dead to other people, and can be resurrected to new life. When I preach about Easter and the resurrection, it is in a metaphorical sense. And Hitchens concludes by saying, I hate to say it, we've hardly been introduced, but maybe you're simply living on the inheritance of a monstrous, monstrous fraud that was preached to millions of people as a literal truth, as you put it, the ground of being. Now, I read this because Maybe the one and only time Christopher Hitchens, an atheist, and the Apostle Paul agree. <laughs> they agree on what? That the resurrection must be front and central if you are a follower of Jesus. It either happened historically in the middle of our world and history, or it didn't. Jesus either walked out of that grave, or he's still dead. 
And we just celebrate this in a metaphorical, nicety way of celebrating and spending some time together and eating good food. But what Paul and Christopher Hitchens is saying is that it either happened or it didn't. And Paul says, Jesus rose from the grave. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And do you know what he says? What Michaela read earlier in the first part of chapter 15 is that you can go talk to eyewitness accounts. Talk to Peter, Cephas. Talk to the 12 disciples. Talk to the over 500 people that saw Jesus after he rose from the grave. Talk to James. Talk to myself. And most of us are still alive. This was written probably around 12 to 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. So there are people who you can actually go to and ask, did you actually see him? Did you eat with him? Did you actually talk with him? Did you hang out with him? And all of them have given eyewitness account that they did. And if that's not sufficient enough, the evidence of historians, scholars who are secular, non-Christians, the majority of them would say, the evidence takes me there to an empty grave. People like Geza Vermes, probably the greatest Jesus historian ever. Others like Paula Fredrickson, a historian and scholar of early Christianity who used to be at Boston University and now is at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. These famous non-Christian historians will say, the evidence takes me to an empty tomb. I can't deny it. But my faith does not lead me there. You see the distinction? The question for us this morning is, what do you believe about the nature of God? What do you believe about humanity? What do you believe about our world? The evidence is clear. Historians cannot negate it. But it's what, where your faith leads you to. Whether you're a Christian or other than Christian, where does your faith take you? That's the importance of the resurrection. What Paul and many Christians around the world today are saying is that Jesus physically rose from the grave and he is alive. What are the implications for that? What does that mean for you and for me? If Jesus rose from the grave, well, the first is that we have future hope. Future hope. Paul uses this beautiful analogy of first fruits. And what first fruits was literally, it was the first fruit off of the vine. And it signaled the harvest, the huge enormity of the beauty of the bounty of whatever you were going to harvest, whether it was grains or fruits. It signaled, the first fruit signaled what was to come. I remember as a little kid growing up in Orange County. And guess what was in Orange County? A lot of oranges. <laughs> and we had a beautiful orange tree in our backyard. And I remember every year my grandma and grandpa, they would bring in the first basket of oranges sometime in the fall. I don't remember when. And I got so excited as a little kid because those were the juiciest, sweetest oranges you can ever have. And what got me so excited was I knew that from November all the way to June or whenever, I was going to have unending and plentiful of oranges. The harvest was coming. And Paul says Jesus is the first fruit. His resurrection is the first fruit among the dead, meaning he signals what is true, going to happen for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ. 
Our corruptible bodies will become incorruptible. Our perishable bodies will become imperishable, as Paul says. All that is broken in our world, all the injustice, all the death, all the pain, all the suffering will be no more because it is not a metaphor that Jesus rose from the grave, but it happened. Let me read you the Jesus Storybook Bible, a book for children, but also for our own adult hearts of what the first fruits and the harvest is going to be like. At the end of Revelations, this is how it's summarized. And the king says, look, God and his children, that's us, are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I've wiped away every tear from every eye. Then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky said, Look, I'm making everything new. No matter what we go through right now, we have a hope that there's a future that is so beautiful we can't even begin to imagine what it is going to be like. That through your suffering, through the deaths that you experience, we can have a future hope because Jesus was risen from the dead. But there's a second thing here we see is a present confidence. A present confidence. I love Paul's victory cry at the end of this chapter. Paul is so confident in the resurrection that Jesus actually rose from the grave that he taunts death. He mocks death. It's this like cosmic trash talk to death. And what does he say? He says, oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have present confidence now. We've gone through a lot of deaths as a church family over the last couple of years, haven't we? We lost two twin newborns. We've lost many parents and grandparents over these last two years and there's just been so much death and grief and funerals. And as we think about all of that, what we see here and what I begin to realize is that whether you bury a newborn or whether you bury parents who have aged, a loved one's funeral is one of the most darkest moments in our lives, isn't it? And yet what Paul says is that even in the midst of the grief, even in the midst of the lament and anger against what is wrong and unnatural, death is not natural. And it's in all of our, every fiber of our being. Because even when an old, uh, someone who's aged and passed away, there is injustice that we feel that they should have lived another 30 years, another 100 years. We didn't do X, Y, and Z. Why? Because death is not natural. We were, we were created to be born, to grow, to get stronger, to get wiser and smarter, to see our world become greater and better. And yet sin has entered our world. And death, the last enemy, has ruled and reigned. And what Paul says is because of Jesus' resurrection, we can have confidence. We can even mock death. And experience the victory even in the midst of our lament and our grief. I love the way 
scholar Paul Barnett described death. He said, death is like a schoolyard bully before whom other children cowered until a stronger one came along and defeated him, giving all others freedom and hope. Death's been a bully, but you need never fear him again. He has been defeated. There's freedom and hope for all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It can't do anything to us who believe. I was listening to a podcast this morning, and sure all of us, if not most of us, have heard about the shootings in Co- at Covenant School in Nashville. And if you don't know by now, the senior pastor, Chad Scruggs, lost his own daughter, nine-year-old daughter, Hallie, in that shooting. And when his friends came around him and surrounded him with love, he said, this is the pastor, he said that he was going to have the funeral service for Hallie in the sanctuary of the church where it was still a crime scene. And his friends said, how courageous of you to do that. And you know what Chad said? He said with death-defying words, it's not courage. I refuse to let the devil win here. That sanctuary belongs to Jesus, not Satan. That's where I'm having Hallie's funeral. That's hope. That's confidence, even in the midst of the deep grief that they are going through there. There's a confidence and a hope that we can have because Jesus rose from the grave. Otherwise, we're pathetic. We're pitiful people. But because Jesus rose from the grave, we can experience the joy that comes because we know this is not the end of the story. Remember the story of Joseph Strauss and all of his innovations to be able to cheat death and evade death. Well, I didn't even share about the crown jewel of safety enhancements that he had. He decided to do or put together this large safety net that cost $130,000. Chump change now, but in the 1930s, that was a lot of money. And this thing extended the entire length of the Golden Gate Bridge and extended 10 feet across both sides of the bridge so that anyone who would fall over would be safe because of that safety net. And guess what? It worked. 19 people over four years fell over and 19 lives were saved. And they thrived because they knew they were safe. They were confident. So much so that guess what? The Golden Gate Bridge finished ahead of schedule and under budget. When's the last time you've heard of any construction project finishing ahead of schedule and under budget? But why were they able to do it? Because of the confidence and security that they had. My favorite part of this story was that they got so secure, so comfortable, and felt so safe that Joseph Strauss had to put up a sign all throughout the bridge to the construction workers that said, you are no longer allowed to leap over the Golden Gate Bridge. Can you imagine that? They had to stop people from jumping over. The thing that scared them the most gave them the most joy. The thing that promised death to them became the source of life. It works the same way with the resurrection, brothers and sisters. 
If you know that you have an unshakable hope that is rooted in the past actions of God, that he rose from the grave, that you know you have a future hope in eternity that is secure, unfading, incorruptible, kept in heaven for you, then the very thing that scares you the most, the last enemy death, would become the greatest joy for you. That's what God has done for us. We can leap into the dangers of life with, with smiles on our faces. We can be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord because Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for you have risen indeed. You have conquered death and you have put death to death and you walked out of that tomb victorious. So Lord, I pray for all of us here in this room, whether we have experienced deaths of dreams lost, of unmet desires, or physical deaths of loved ones, and we're in a place where we are struggling, Lord, may we look to you, our risen Savior, with scars in your hands, scars in your feet, to know, Lord, that you have conquered death and we do not need to fear anymore. I pray, Lord, that even as we come to the table now, May you give us that grace, give us that strength, give us the hope and the joy and the confidence that can only come from you because you have risen. Oh, do that good work as we eat and drink together now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.